morning, Thrive Church. Good morning. Well, as Pastor JV has said, over the past three weeks, we've been doing a series here called Take Me Haya. And it's a series that um, has been talking about overcoming seven of life's biggest struggles. And, uh, you know, over the last three weeks, Pastor JB has talked about pride. Pastor JB has talked about envy, and he's talked about greed. And if you missed any of those sermons, be sure to go online or check out our podcast because you do not want to miss it. I believe that when you apply the principles that he has taught, that it will change your life and that it will change your relationships. Amen? Amen. Amen. But today, today we're going to go into the fourth struggle or the fourth deadly sin. And before we do that, I'm going to invite all of you to stand up with me and we're going to read a passage of scripture together. Is that okay? So we're going to read together. We're going to read from Ephesians 4, 26 to 32. And I want to hear loud, clear voices this morning. So let's read. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so before you sit down, will you turn to your neighbor and ask them, have you mastered anger? And you may have a seat. See, as you can guess from the title this morning, the message that I want to share with you is called Mastering Anger. Do you struggle with anger? You know, one of the, one of the reasons why I think this past week it's been very difficult to prepare this message is because here at Thrive, we've actually talked about dealing with your anger quite a few times in the past half year. And so I believe that I'm actually talking to a crowd full of people who've already mastered anger and, uh, you know, who are so good at it or maybe not, I don't know. You can tell me. But in any event, what I want to do today is I want to take a few moments to just review the things that we have learned this past year about dealing with anger. You know, maybe it's because you're not, you've, you weren't here before, or maybe you forgot. So I thought we would just do a quick review. Is that okay? All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to review, and then we're going to build on it with something fresh that I believe is going to help us when it comes to dealing with anger in a healthy way. And so first, one thing that we know about anger is that Actually, feeling anger itself is actually not a sin. Everyone say, it's not a sin. See, feeling anger, having the emotion of anger is actually not a sin. But it's the way that we manage our feelings of anger that can be a sin. I want, to, I want you to read Ephesians 4.26 again with me. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. See, in other words... It is possible to feel angry, but it is possible to be angry without sinning. It is possible to deal with anger in a healthy way. And earlier this year, we looked at four unhealthy ways that people tend to vent their anger. Do you guys remember? All right, let me remind you. There are four ways, and I love how Pastor JB categorized them into four different animals. The very first one is called the pufferfish. 
So you, the puffer fish, the puffer fish is the one that kind of blows up when it feels it's attacked. It blows up when it feels threatened. And then it completely blows up to like multiple times its size. Are you a puffer fish? Are you someone who blows up when someone offends you? Do you cuss? Do you scream? Do you yell? And you just let them have it. Are you a puffer fish? Or number two. Number two, it's called the clam. Now, the clam is the complete opposite of the puffer fish. It doesn't blow up, it clams up. And what happens is it lets the anger kind of simmer slowly and let the anger burn and burn and burn and burn until it can't burn anymore, until the clam can't hold it in anymore. And then all of a sudden it explodes in what I call a delayed puffer fish. Now, are you a clam? Or there's a third one. There's the third one called the whale in captivity. Now, the whale in captivity is the one that's marked by sadness. It's in captivity. It doesn't really know why it's there. And it's like, why me? Why is it always me? And it just kind of swims around. Why is it always my fault? And it doesn't even necessarily know that they're angry because they just have no idea how to deal with anger. Or the fourth one, are you a shark? Now, the model of the shark is don't get mad, get even. And so if you're talking to a shark and you say, I'm sorry, did I offend you? They'll say, no, of course not. Are you kidding me? W me offended? No way. But then they will completely deny it. And when the right opportunity comes and they want to get even, what they do is they jab, they stab, they make these sarcastic comments. And then that's when they try to get even for their anger. Now, which one of the four can you most relate to? Let me ask you guys a question. Which one do you think I am? All right, don't answer, don't answer. I'll tell you later, okay? So don't answer. But the fact is, the reason why I'm talking about this is because we need to deal with anger in a healthy way. Otherwise, it's going to cause some problems. See, let me tell you two problems that it would create if we don't learn to deal with anger in a healthy way. First, it could create problems in your relationships. Now, I just told you to guess which kind of animal I am. And let me tell you, I think... I like to think that I am an angel fish. But the fact is, my, my family totally tells me otherwise, especially one of my sons. I'm not going to say who, one of my sons. <laughs> one of my sons says, Mommy, sometimes like, you can be such a pufferfish that you actually scare me. And this is what my son tells me. So in case you're not sure what venting style you are, just go ask your family, because they'll definitely tell you. right? And so let me, let me explain that a little bit more. See. Let's take any weekday, for example, in our home. 7.10 is breakfast time. And so at 7.10, I will usually, you know, go to my son and I'll say, breakfast is ready. Come and eat your delicious breakfast. Make sure we're not ready. Like, you know, we're not, we're not late for school, so come and eat your breakfast. And I'm saying this with, like, a smile on my face. And my son, I'm not going to tell you which one, is walking around the house in his pajamas and he's kind of wandering. Sometimes he's reading the Bible. Sometimes he's playing with Lego and he's just kind of wandering. I'm not really sure if he heard me. And so a couple of minutes goes by, and I'll be like, son, come and eat your breakfast while it's hot. It's really yummy today. And, um, and, you know, if I don't get a response, and I have to repeat this command for the 10th time within a span of 25 minutes, that's when the, even the sweetest angelfish turns into a puffer fish. And that's when I'm like, son, get over here right now and eat your breakfast before it's too late. Right? And so my son is telling me that I am a puffer fish. And I'm like... All right, fine. But one day I sat him down and I said, you know, um, let's talk about this because 
I don't like to be a puffer fish, and you don't want to be scared by a puffer fish. And so how about this? Every time I say something, just do it the first time I say it, instead of the 10th time. Because I can guarantee you that if you do it the very first time, you will have an angel fish in your ear, like sweetly saying, come, honey, and eat your breakfast. But if you wait until the 10th time, I guarantee you that the puffer fish will be puffing and huffing in your face, right? And so... Now, I'm not making an excuse for why or, you know, that just because I'm saying this for the 10th time or the 100th time that I actually have the right to say it that way. This is probably the reason why I'm preaching the sermon to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. But truth be told, the fact is that we really need to learn to control our anger because if we don't, it could really hurt the relationships in our lives. You see, Proverbs 22:24 it says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. The fact is, if we cannot control our temper, don't be surprised if the people around you actually don't really want to talk to you. And did you know that it's not just the people? It actually hurts your relationship with God. You see, in 1 John 4.20, it says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. See, you cannot be right in your relationship with God if you cannot have the right heart towards other people. And so tell the person next to you, it's so important to learn to control our anger. Now, there's a second problem that it would create. It's not just your relationships, but the thing is that it could actually result in some very unhealthy behaviors. Let me explain this a little bit more. You know, several years ago, I gave birth to a son. I'm not going to tell you which son. And, um, and, you know, we were just really in that initial stage of getting to know each other. And so for any of you who've tried to put a baby to sleep, it's sometimes not as easy as it looks. And so um, there was, I remember, a period of three days where this son of mine was um, very difficult to put down. And it's almost like every time I put him down, he would cry, and then I would have to pick him up, and then I would hold him, rock him, walk around the house, walk up, up and down the stairs. And I was really, really, really exhausted after three days of just very, very little sleep. And so at the end of that three days, I was so frustrated. And I admit, I think I was actually quite angry at myself. I'm like, how hard could this thing be? I was so angry that I went downstairs to the kitchen. I went to the basket where we keep all our fruits. And then I looked at these uh, lemons that were rotting. And so I took these lemons. I opened the door to my backyard. And I started throwing these lemons in my backyard. For the next couple minutes, you know, Pastor JB comes down. And he's just like, what is going down on downstairs? And so then he catches on to the fact that I'm like throwing these lemons because I'm, I'm really needing to release my anger. And so what he does is he actually goes to the backyard and he starts catching all of these lemons. He brings them back to me so that I can like keep releasing my anger by throwing more. And, you know, thankfully, well, why am I sharing this with you? It's because sometimes anger can drive us to do some pretty crazy things. You know, thankfully, I was not throwing at my baby. Thankfully, like, I was not throwing these lemons at Pastor JB. But what am I trying to say? The fact is we got to learn to master our anger because if we don't, our behavior, our unhealthy behavior could actually hurt us and hurt the people around us. See, Proverbs 14, 17, it says, A quick-tempered person does foolish, foolish things. So let's not be foolish and do foolish things. Don't let your anger control you. Control your anger. 
Now, I think we can all think of times. I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has, you know, these anger bouts, right? I'm sure we can all think of times when we've dealt with anger in maybe a not-so-healthy way. And so the question is, how can we control our anger? You know, to control your anger, we're going to review three things. It helps to reflect before you react. Ask yourself questions, three questions, like, why am I angry? Usually anger is rooted in three things. One is that you are hurt, or that you are frustrated, or that you feel threatened, right? The second question you can ask is, do I have the right like, to be angry? And do I have all my facts straight? Let me share a story that I, I read once. It was um, in France, there was this woman who became really fed up with her neighbors parking their car just right in front of her, um, right in front of her driveway, in her, her front entrance. And so for weeks, she pleaded with them, she asked them, could you please stop doing that? And nothing changed. And so one day, she woke up before dawn, and she sees this brand new, gleaming, red-colored vehicle parked right in front of her front door. And she decided that enough was enough. And so she took a wire brush, and she decided to scratch the paint. And then, as if that wasn't enough, she poured gallons of bright fluorescent paint onto the car. And then she slashed the tires. And after that, she felt very satisfied and she went back to bed. The next morning, her husband came to wake her up and he really wanted to show her the present that he had bought for their 10th year anniversary. It was a brand new red colored car. Praise God, I hope that never happened to you. But that's the second kind of question that you can ask is, do I have my facts straight? Am I getting frustrated for the right reasons, right? Number three, the third question you can ask is, will this really even matter in 24 hours? Or can I just relax a little bit? See, I'm going to share a verse with you from Proverbs 14.30. And this translation is from the Living Bible. And it says, a relaxed attitude lengthens a person's life. And so if you want to have a long life, then don't get caught up on the petty things in life, right? If you want to live a long life, don't get so angry so easily. And that is a quick summary of what we've learned about anger so far up to this point. And to build on that today, I want to do something a little bit different. You know, I want to, I want to do something that I think will be really helpful for us. I want to look at two passages in the Bible talking about how Jesus dealt with anger. And we're going to look at two instances from Jesus's life where he did something specific with his anger. And in looking at these two instances, we want to learn healthy ways to control our anger so that we become better and better at mastering it. After all, mastering uncontrolled anger, remember what we said, is that you, like, it's, it's not a sin. It's really not a sin to get angry. We will all get angry, but it's about learning to deal with it in a healthy way and who to better learn than from Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to two places, or first place with me. It's in John chapter 2, 13 to 17. We're going to look at this verse together, and we're going to read it together. And it says, <clears throat> when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? 
His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. You know, especially for those of you who grew up learning that Jesus is a very kind and compassionate and gentle God and that he is a healer. He loves the little children. He says, you know, let the little children come to me um, and that he never came to condemn the sinners. This event in the Bible might stick out like a sore thumb for you. You see, he's in the temple. And this time Jesus is in the temple and he is not worshiping. He is not blessing the children. He is not healing the sick. But what is he doing? He is like flipping tables and he is whipping animals. And so you're probably looking at this and thinking, how could Jesus act this way in such a violent way? Or you might be thinking, you know, I'm really angry at my husband right now. Can I whip him? Well, don't do that. Before you do that, let me, I know we all want to be like Jesus, but don't do that. Let's look at what Jesus actually did. See, Jesus is making a really powerful statement against what was like decades of system, systemic injustice going on in the temple of Jerusalem. Now, let me explain. So back in the days when people were going to the temple, they would go to the temple and they would give their offerings. And the Bible says that when you go to the temple and you give an offering, you have to give an animal that is completely flawless and without blemish. It has to be a perfect animal. And so these people would go to the temple and they would want to give their offering to God. And they would bring their own cattle, they would bring their own sheep, or they would bring their own birds. And then they would bring it to the temple. But because the temple leaders and the priests wanted to make money off of them, what they would do is they had a policy and they said, whoever brings these animals to us, let's tell them that it is unfit for offering. And so basically they will reject all of them and then they will turn them to the tables on the side, the sales tables on the side, and they will say, go and pick up one of the animals from the side because those ones have all been pre-approved and they are perfect. And what they would do is they would charge an exorbitant amount for those animals. Now for people who were traveling from far away and they really had no choice, they really didn't have, didn't know what else to do besides to buy those animals for a really expensive price. And in, as a result, the priests and the temple leaders would make a lot of money off of these worshipers. Now, about the money changers. And so you saw that Jesus also flipped the table of the money changers, right? And he scattered the coins. And the reason is because the other thing that they do at the temple is they come to pay temple taxes. And so they'll come, and then a lot of the foreign people will come with foreign money. And, and, and so what they will do is they will go, and they will try to offer their foreign money. And the temple leaders would say, I'm sorry, we can't accept that because there's a face of Caesar on it or there's an inscription of a, of, of a foreign deity. We cannot accept that in God's temple. And so they would make up all these different excuses and then they would say, please go to the foreign exchange table on the side. And so they would go. And then the people, the foreign exchange people would say, show me what you have. Okay, I'm sorry, we can't accept that, but I can exchange shekels for you to give as offering or to pay your taxes. And then what they would do is they would give them a foreign exchange rate that is so high that is maybe like 10 times the amount of normal rate. And they would basically make money off of that. And so when Jesus saw all that was going on, you know, there was some really like horrible systemic corruption and justice happening in the temple. He was so angry. You see, what he said was, this is not, this is not a place to make money. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And so that's why he was so angry that he flipped the tables and he, you know, he made a cord, like he made a, he, he made a whip out of the cords and then he drove these animal out, animals out. He drove the merchants out and he 
he was basically making a very, very big statement, right? It's similar to the 1500s when Martin Luther posted 50, 50 or 95 theses on the door of a church in Germany, and it was protesting that uh, the s- systemic injustice that was happening in the churches at that time, where they were actually trying to sell salvation when the Bible clearly says that salvation is free. It's very similar to, for example, um, a couple days ago, 27 young Canadian activists, they held a protest inside the House of Commons to encourage Parliament to do something about the climate change. In each case, the protesters were angry, and their anger became a tool for something to fight injustice. In their anger, they took extreme measures, but it was still in some ways like you know, peaceful measures that, of what they believe could fix the injustice in, in, in the society. But what about us? I mean, what are the things that we are getting upset over? You know, what are some, like, is it personal and very smaller scale things? For example, do you feel disrespected by a spouse and therefore you're getting angry? Or is it a friend who didn't like you, I don't know, on Facebook? Or is it, a, or is it that the connect's lost? Should you really flip tables and pull out a whip? Right? And so the lesson here I learned from Jesus is that sometimes when we are angry, we need to learn to fight well, to fight for the right reasons, and to fight appropriately. And there are going to be a couple, like, I'm going to give you three tips on how to fight well. The fact is, like I said earlier, anger is something that is just completely inevitable. And so if we need to build healthy relationships, then we want to make sure that we are careful in how we express our anger. So I'm going to give you three tips on how do we fight well when angry. Tip number one, to fight well when angry, avoid abusive language. Avoid abusive language. I think one of the most important lessons that I learned in marriage to Pastor JB is not what we say, but it's actually how we say it. You see, it's pretty amazing just how many times we actually fight. And at the end of that fight, we'd be like, you know, the content of what we're fighting about is actually not that big of a deal, but it's usually the tone that we are upset about upset about. It's usually how we said it. And that's the first thing, is that how you say something, when you say something, is so important. Let me give you an example. Why is in this place? See, if you want your husbands to take out the garbage, then this is not how you want to do it. Hello, the garbage has been sitting there for three days. Can you please do something about this? Because I can guarantee you that if you said that, your husband would jump out of the couch not to go and take out the garbage, but to start a fight with you, right? Now, if we're talking about not wanting to use abusive language, wanting to be gentle with our tone, because the Bible also teaches that a gentle, like a gentle answer will turn away wrath, the key is gentle answer. Say something like this. Honey, oh my goodness, I can't believe last week I didn't even ask you when you took out the garbage. That was so wonderful. Wow, I look forward to the next time you do this. (laughs) Well, you know, if you said that, I think the response would be quite different, right? I'm going to try that next time, by the way. (laughs) But see, you have to understand that when you are angry, sometimes it means that you need to bite your tongue. Sometimes it it means that you just need to hold back a little bit, that you just need to take a few breaths before you say something and something just spews out of your mouth. Thomas Jefferson once said this. He says, if you are angry, count to ten. And if you're very angry, count to 100. 
I really hope that you don't have to count to 100 very often, but I think the learning is to hold your tongue. Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. So tell the person next to you, hold your tongue. All right, number two. Number two to fighting well. Number two to fighting well is speak honestly and accurately. Do not exaggerate with words like, you always do this, or you never do that. Because when you start using always, never, and you start exaggerating, you're actually picking a fight. And you're also making the listener very, very angry, and you're making this problem bigger than it actually is. And so instead of speaking in these kind of broad, general strokes, what you want to say is you want to be very specific and accurate. So for example, you can say, you know, when you do something, something, I feel something, something. Let's say, for example, my son. When you don't eat the breakfast that I make, I feel taken for granted, right? I don't say, you never eat my breakfast. You always forget to eat breakfast. I don't say that, but I say, when you don't eat my breakfast, I feel taken for granted. Or another instance, maybe, when you come home late without calling advance, I feel disrespected, like you don't really value my time. And so Ephesians teaches us, Ephesians 4.15, let's read it together. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Number three, tip number three to fighting well is choose your battles wisely because not everything is actually worth fighting about. Ecclesiastes 7.21, it's such an awesome reminder. It says, do not pay attention to every word people say. You know, Pastor Jamie and I have been married for 16 years, and we've learned a lot over the 16 years. We've also fought a lot. I can think of countless things that we've fought about. We've, ta- we've fought about, like, you know, windshield wiper and how fast it should go in the car. We fought about, like, how dishes should be loaded into the dishwasher. You know, Shara would be like, no, it should be loaded this way because it maximizes space. And Pastor Jamie's kind of like, why does it matter? The fact is they, go, they just get washed, right? So we've, we, like, we've fought about all kinds of things. But one thing that we have really learned is that sometimes a lot of things are actually not worth fighting about. And it's so much more important to keep that atmosphere of peace in our home than it is for us to get our way. And so nowadays, sometimes when we feel like the other person is kind of, you know, being a little picky or starting to get angry, something that we sometimes would say, which takes a little bit of humility to admit is, is this really such a big deal? Or if it's not a big deal, let's just move on. Let's just forget it and let's just move on, right? And, um, and the reason is because we want to learn to relax. We want to learn to take criticism and not care so much about what everyone says. And if you want, I believe that if you want to know how to take criticism well and not care so much, there's a key in Proverbs 14:26. It says, reverence for the Lord gives confidence and security to a man. A person who is insecure, a person who is not confident in him or herself will tend to take things very personally. And if you don't want to become that person, then the Bible says reverence for the Lord. Believe what God says about you. Believe that he has a destiny for you, that he has a purpose for your life, and recognize that different people are just going to have different opinions and different things, and it doesn't matter when things don't go your way. When you remember that, you're not going to blow up as easily. Amen? Amen. And that leads me to the second instance. The second instance in, J- in, 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 um, in Jesus' life that we're going to be looking at. We're going to read Luke 23, 33 to 43 together. So let's read out loud. <clears throat> when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. See, what is happening in this passage? In this passage, Jesus is on the cross, and he's taking his last breaths. And on his right and on his left are two criminals who have been put there because they have done something very wrong in their society, and they're about to be crucified. But why is Jesus there? Jesus is there not because he did anything wrong, not because he committed any sins, not because he committed any crimes. In fact, the Bible says that he is completely sinless, and he is completely without sin right? He's completely perfect. And the only reason why Jesus is on that cross is because he is dying for your sins and my sins, and he is paying for the penalty of our sins, which is death. And so when we could not have a way, we were separated from God, and we did not have a way to God, God said, I love my people so much. I want to have a relationship with them, and therefore I'm going to make a way for them to come to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for their sins so that their sins can be forgiven, so that our relationship can be restored, so that they can have a relationship with me and they can be called my children. That's exactly what God did. See, he didn't say, you sinned, therefore you pay. He didn't take revenge on us. He didn't judge us. He did not condemn us in any way. But instead, he said, I forgive you. Just as Jesus said, I forgive all these people who have hurt me and who are torturing me. And, you know, the Bible doesn't just stop there. It doesn't say he died. But he says three days later, he rose again from the grave. He rose again, and everyone, every single person who believes in him and believes in what he did on the cross can have an eternal life and can have a relationship with him. Their sins can be completely forgiven. What an amazing, amazing act of forgiveness. And what an amazing example of how to deal with anger. It's through forgiveness. And maybe you're in this place today and you're thinking, I am so angry at my husband. or I'm so angry at that person. I'm so angry. And maybe you think that you have every right to be angry. But can I tell you something? The fact is, Jesus, he had every right to be angry. God had every right to be angry. And yet, he completely overlooked them, and he says, I will forgive. There will never be a person in this world that you will need to forgive more than what, how much Jesus has forgiven you. And so if Jesus has set the example of forgiveness, there is no one in this world that we cannot forgive. Amen? Amen. And I want to actually end today with a story. This story is actually something that I saw in the news um, just very recently. 
And, um, you know, on September 6, 2018, there was a policewoman by the name of Amber Geiger who was going back to her apartment after just a really long day of work. And she parked her car in what she thought was the usual spot in the parking lot of her apartment. And she walked down the hallway to her apartment, opened the door, and when she opened the door, she saw a man inside and immediately thought that he was a burglar who had broken into her home. And so her immediate reaction to protect her own safety was she reached for her gun and she shot him. And it wasn't until she called 911 and she started reporting this case and they were asking her, what is your address, that she realized that she was actually not in her apartment. It turns out that her apartment is the one directly below the one that she was in. And Amber ended up shooting and killing the owner of the apartment that lived directly above hers. His name was Botham Jean. And so this news really shook everyone up because many people were angry at Amber for killing a completely innocent man who was just chilling in his own apartment on a, on a, on a random evening. Some people thought she should be sentenced to life in prison. You know, there is no word to describe, I think, the anger and disbelief that Botham's family felt when, over what happened to their son. And it was tough for many to make sense of what happened and not be angry. But last month in October, this was in the news, when Amber's sentence was given in court, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, he took the stand to give a victim impact statement. And he did something remarkable in that courtroom. And I'd like to show what he did and what he said in this next video. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Let's give our God a big hand in this place. You know, there are a couple things I learned from this video and from the story. And it's that forgiveness does not mean that you pretend nothing happened. You know, forgiveness does not mean that this thing doesn't hurt me anymore. Forgiveness does not mean that you are living in denial. I have no doubt that Brant Jean, Botham's brother, completely is devastated and misses his brother tremendously, and he is so deeply hurt. But the fact that he's willing to forgive, it shows that forgiveness is not living in denial, it's not forgetting, but it's facing up to the hurt in our lives. There are a couple other things I learned from the story. 
is that forgiveness does not mean that we trust the person again. In fact, what happened after Brant Jean made his forgiveness statement in court, both his parents also, they're Christians, and they also said that they forgive her, but they were still advocating for justice at the same time. In an interview with CBS News, Botham's mother said, what Brandt did was remarkable, but I do not want it to be misconstrued as a complete forgiveness of everybody. Despite her willingness to forgive, she still felt that the Dallas Police Department, the Texas Rangers, and the city of Dallas needed to be held accountable for what happened to her son. You know, what we learn about forgiveness here is that trust and forgiveness are not the same. Just because you're willing to forgive someone does not mean that you need to trust that person again. That said, in order for us to move on when we're angry and when we've been hurt, is that we need to forgive because if we cannot be mastered by our anger, we have to master our anger. And it's so important that we learn to forgive. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, I'm going to get everyone to read this together. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so, like you, I go through times when I have a really hard time forgiving the people who've hurt me. But there are three things that I remind myself of. Number one is that forgiveness is not a feeling, but it's a choice. Oftentimes, when we make the choice to forgive, that feeling will just follow. Number two, I remind myself that revenge actually doesn't satisfy and that there's really no point in it. It's never going to end. And the third point I remind myself of is that there will never be anyone that I need to forgive more than how much Christ has already forgiven me. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive today? You know, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to sing a song of response. And after that, we're going to have a time of just being able to respond to God through our altar calls. So I'm going to ask